Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I am tackling episode 2 of season 2's Castle Rock, which you can stream exclusively on Hulu. But before I get into that, I'm going to read some listener email. And if you have any time on your hands and you want to share your thoughts on Castle Rock, uh, your hopes and your dreams, uh, what you are responding to this season and what you want to see occur down the road, either in this season or in future seasons, feel free to write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Or you can just write in on any thoughts that you have regarding Stephen King to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, up first, congratulations. This is from Miles. Congratulations. Thank you on predicting slashing encouraging the current King renaissance. I've been binging your podcast for the last two weeks and have gotten to 2015's Needful Things episode. You successfully predicted the Castle Rock TV show and your linking of it and Amblin Entertainment aesthetics, uh, which preceded not only the It movie but Stranger Things as well. Like you and many others, I discovered King in middle school and it dominated my reading and shaped my entertainment tastes totally until my mid-twenties. The first adult book I read was The Shining, after the Amityville Horror, was at 12, because they were the only two books on my grandmother's bookshelf that weren't bodice rippers. That summer I spent at my grandparents' creepy farmhouse in a small castle-like town. From then, I was hooked on King and horror until Needful Things at 23 when I moved on and only revisited King casually for The Dark Tower or to compliment the TV slash uh, movie productions as they came out, like 11... 2263. The success of It and Stranger Things for me of the early books that function like music or photos evoking very specific moments in my life. Unlike you, I don't have um, the commitment to reread books. I only hazily remember the stand in the dark towers being the exception. So it was a great joy to listen to your detailed, thoughtful podcasts on all of those books. It had enough of an effect, though. Though unwilling to reread, I did get audiobooks of a few that you intrigued me to revisit, the short story collections. I am eager to finish your podcast, especially The Dark Towers. Uh, they are the most amazing collections of stories spanning the lives of creators and consumers alike. They are beautiful, exciting, problematic, and sometimes disappointing. I hope someday someone that grew up real-time with a love of the material gets a production right and has the creativity to address some of the flaws. Given its cyclical nature, I'd rather see one of the others turn the wheel. From Billy. Uh, thank you, Billy. They, um, I know that earlier I said that it was Miles, but signs off on Billy. So thank you, Miles, for, for writing in. And yeah, that brings me back. I uh, When I started this this um, project, there just, there, there wasn't, like I said, there, there wasn't, King just was not what King is now. Um, it, which is just strange to say, because when I was growing up, I mean, King was everything, but then he hit in just terms of pop culture uh, discussion and relevance, just no one was talking about him. So I'm glad. I'm glad that the thing that the wheel has turned the way that it should. Okay, and then up next, uh, we have um, uh, Gabe Rodriguez, who writes, uh, Hi, Constant Reader. Thank you for reading my previous email about It Chapter 2 on your podcast. I know we have different opinions on the movie, but I want to ask you what I feel is a fair question. How would you adapt the ritual of Chud cinematically? 
Many people have criticized the climax of the movie, but I'm having a hard time thinking of what else they really could have done. In the book, Bill and Pennywise have a telepathic connection and showdown in the deadlights, which weakens it in spider form. Basically, Bill, with a little help from the others, beats the creature with his mind. This is a climax that I feel works on the page or on an intellectual level, but would play flat in a movie. How do you communicate this climax visually? Do you have the other losers just stand around as Bill sits down for a telepathic link? Do you show the deadlights as this alternate dimension where Bill and Pennywise have a cosmic showdown, something like you would see in Doctor Strange? Do you show the spider go from being scary and domineering to suddenly becoming weak and wounded from just a telepathic blow? Do you drop the ritual of Chud altogether and just have the losers physically attack the giant spider? Again, this is coming from someone who's a lifelong fan of the novel, who has read it in its entirety three times. But the ritual of Chud is just so vague in the novel, its rules not entirely clear, that I just can't think of a way to adapt it to a film without either being too confusing or come off as anticlimactic. What Andy Muschietti and his team came up with was not a perfect fit. Was not perfect at all. Yes, I hated the Native American mythology slash explanation. That was just plain lazy. And Eddie's death felt completely flat. But the climax they ultimately came up with strikes me as a decent compromise between one, adapting a scene that's very hard to adapt, two, still having a cosmic element, three, creating something that would be visually and dramatic for a movie-going audience, and four, involving all of the main characters equally. What we got was each character fighting it in their own Nightmare on Elm Street-style cosmic reality, followed by them coming together and basically bullying it to death. I totally get that it's not the most original climax in the world, but to me it was the best possible compromise they could have done. I know you didn't like it, but I ask you sincerely, as a fair question, how would you adapt the ritual of Chud in a cinematic way? Great job on the podcast, and on a completely unrelated note, I thought I would answer what you might be wondering. Uh, yes, Gay Rodriguez is my real name. No relation to the Gabriel Rodriguez, who works on Joe Hill, works with Joe Hill. But when I first heard you say his name on your podcast, I actually did a double take. I guess it's just ka that people with my name end up with some connection to Stephen King. Gabe, uh, thank you for writing in. That's a really great thought-provoking question. Um, and so I, it's one that I've been thinking about um, since I first read it. And it, my answer goes back, if you go back to, I believe my thoughts on it chapter one what i was talking about looking what i was looking forward to with chapter two i wanted i would have been very impressed if they made the 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 fear and the horror of it chapter two more adult um and more existential than 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 things popping out at you um, that was my hope going into it. And what does that look like? It looks more tonal. It looks more, uh, well, it looks like something, I, I would say that for a great representation of what horror, what that kind of horror would look like, um, I would point to The Shining, uh, whose sequel, Dr. Sleep, comes out very, very soon, which is great. But, uh, that, that, you just feel disoriented because reality and and semblance of of logic and your understanding of of the rules of the world really slip away right in front of you. Um, and someone that does this extremely well is David Lynch. So, what I would do, I would have disorientation, um, and the the horror of not knowing what reality is anymore. So I, 
I, I just don't want to... It's not as easy to just say, just look at what David Lynch does with uh, the Black Lodge, but the helplessness and the, the sheer disorientation that comes from that, and then everything in Twin Peaks, the return finale. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, where you don't even know who you are or what you are, and you have to still accomplish this mission. Um, I think that when you become an adult and as you head into your your middle age years, um, fear, you might long for the days where you were afraid of a clown, all right? The, the, because the, the fears that you start to have are so much more amorphous and all-consuming and they are um, beyond scope. All right. Uh, so I, I think that um, some sort of reality that took that into account um, would would work wonders for me personally. Maybe not everybody, and it wouldn't, you know. But um, I, I don't know if I'm answering that question right. I would just say, see Twin Peaks and see what David Lynch does in terms of working with with tone. I think that the answer isn't necessarily how would you do it plot-wise, how would you be able to create that tone um, in order to show the existential threat of being within the mind of a greater entity than you. That's that's what I would do. Um, okay, guys, that that's all that I'm going to read right now. Uh, this is going to be a quicker episode than the, the, the last um, the last one, the last couple, because I've been able to, to catch up on emails now that I've been, um, you know, doing more episodes within a, a shorter amount of time. Okay, so if you have, like I said, with if you have any time on your hands, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. All right, so uh, Castle Rock Season 2, Episode 2. Uh, when we, we begin, Annie wakes up in a, an ancient chamber of some sort. It's definitely, I don't know if it's ancient, it's definitely old. It's an old chamber. Um, we see old caskets. Um, one has been smashed open by the body of the uh, recently deceased uh, Ace Merrill, who died by an ice cream scooper. Uh, we see a couple names on the caskets. Nothing that my Stephen King eyes uh, spied. Um, I, I didn't recognize any of them, and I assume that this has uh, something to do with the witches that have been referenced in the, the, the previous episode. I think that that's probably where we're going to go with this. Um, on the walls, I do want to acknowledge that we see carvings of beetles and scarabs, which bring to mind for me the China Pit uh, in desperation and the idea of unearthing evil below us um, in an underground cavern definitely makes me think of Tack. Um, so, last episode I talked about Jerusalem's Lot uh, versus Salem's Lot and how I was not referring to the town as Salem's Lot even though that's the more famous one. And this, this is why. It's because many people might automatically assume vampires when thinking about Salem's Lot. But keep in mind that the town is not being referred to as its more famous nickname, but its more proper full name which is also the name of the Night Shift short story which tells the tale of the town's past, possibly in the same world as the more famous book or possibly on one of the other worlds spinning around uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower. Regardless, Jerusalem's Lot, the short story, is more of a, 
Lovecraftian nightmare of underground tunnels and unspecified dead creatures living in the walls. Uh, there is an ancient worm god living beneath the town, so there's there's that too. Now, I mention all of this because the presence of these caverns as Annie makes her way through the labyrinth, ultimately below the Marston house, feels more of a piece with the short story of monsters below the ground and in the walls than the classic vampire tale depicted in Salem's Lot. Now, with that said, I mean, we clearly get the Marston house here. Um, so there's no reason why we can't get both or some sort of blending between the two. But what what I'm trying to say is I, I don't know if we are going to get a classic tale of vampirism here. Um, and I don't think that we're going to be getting a retelling of Salem's Lot. Because clearly the events of Salem's Lot as they occurred within the book have not occurred within this town um, because there aren't a bunch of vampires running around everywhere. A anyway, so what, whatever animated ace uh, is not your traditional vampire. We, at one point um, before we, we stay with Annie running through the catacombs, uh, we see some sort of uh, decomposed goo oozing all over him and so I, I don't know what that is if it's just a, like an alien entity i don't know if it's just the liquefied remains of a supernatural creature that possesses the body uh, but i'm sure that we will find out but based on that i the fangs and the blood drinking and the drinking of the blood and um the the, the let me in through your window all of that i i don't think that we're going to to see uh this season Annie makes it out through the Marston house, and in a cool moment to show how undeterred she is, she returns to the construction site to fill in the giant hole that she fell into. Now, okay, as cool as it is to see that she is so thorough and committed uh, that she'll go back and fill in the hole, I want us to take a moment and remember that she fell in to a giant cavernous hole and no amount of uh, <laughs> uh, determination is going to be able to fill that in with uh, some some shovelfuls of dirt. Um, so I, yeah, that that one got me. Anyway, Nadia fills Pop uh, in on what Ace had done, and he promptly stops his chemo treatment to take care of things. And he starts looking for Ace, which brings him to the Mellow Tiger, local dive bar. And there is a city planning event at the dive bar. Um, now, I have worked on uh, community planning. I have worked in town government. Um, I have frequented dive bars on many occasions. But I have never seen the combination of uh, city planning officially occurring at the local dive bar. Th this is not a thing that happens. Um, anyway, after talking about the town's history with witches, they are quickly corrected by Pop, who clarifies that the witches were in fact Satanists who made a bad deal with a bad hombre. Okay, so who is he talking about here? Is he referring to Satan? Is he is he just saying that whatever their end, whatever gruesome end that they met, where they were killed or run out of town or whatever that it was just they shouldn't have made a deal with the devil okay is it that or is there an actual figure 
in the past of Castle Rock slash Jerusalem's Lot um, that is going to play a part in future episodes. Who could it be? I mean, we're talking about Jerusalem's Lot. We've mentioned the Marston House. Who else lives at the Marston House within the world of Stephen King? Could this be Kurt Barlow? Um, is this going to be some sort of retelling, you know, reimagination of who the Kurt Barlow character is? Um, is it anybody else? Uh, could it be Leland Gaunt? He was a bad hombre. I mean, is it the granddaddy of them all? Is it Randall Flagg? You know, are we going to see someone with the initials RF play a part with these witches in the past and someone else come in with a different set of RF initials? Um, could it be Andre Linoge, the, uh, the, the, the wandering wizard? Um, could it be the Cranesman the King himself? Or, I mean, keeping within the continuity of this particular show, could it be the kid? You know, do we learn that the kid's story in uh, season one of Castle Rock was not as pat as he made it out to be? And maybe there's more layers to him and maybe he was lying. So maybe he has been around for a while and he just sticks around this area to to tempt and to um, prod and to pry and to test and see how people are going to react to things. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. But that when... Tim Robbins uttered the term bad hombre. I, I definitely got excited at uh, the prospect of one of the classic Stephen King villains popping up into the story. Um, okay, and then in the meantime, Abdi sends one of his men to shoo away the squatters only to discover what appears to be charred remains. And uh, one of this, this uh, employee of Abdi's can't investigate too long because a blow to the head with an axe will do that to you. At the hospital, Pop confronts Annie over his deduction that Ace had been at her rental. This is a really good scene. And Lizzie Kaplan really demonstrates how conniving and how much of a survivalist Annie is, leading Pop to the conclusion that it was Abdi who had done it. And I really like this scene. Just a really good scene of two actors just going at it and um just the the survival instinct of annie wilkes knowing that there is she is facing a threat in front of her that can see through bullshit and her having to really scramble um in 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 order to to land um safely that it was just really really well done i really liked that moment and as a result ace orchestrates the abduction of abdi whatever relationship they might have had uh, it has now soured, with Abdi suggesting that there was a secret that Pop has been holding from Nadia. And my assumption is that in the war, uh, Pop killed their parents, uh, which would explain an earlier flashback in which Nadia and Abdi wondered why Pop had settled on them to foster. That would explain that. That would explain the guilt of why he, he would want to, to, to foster these, these refugees and... So, I mean, it's just, there's definitely layers between these two characters that I want to see explored in future episodes that I, I, I find very, very fascinating. Um, and so the, the, there's a heartbreak there. There's a mutual sense of understanding between these two men and a respect. Um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, like, like he said, it's, I, uh, he said that, it's, you know, it's all business. Um, and that's sad. Or is that in the next episode? I don't know. But there is, uh, there's a tragedy um, and there is like a, a mutual respect and a love. Um, and I don't know if it's going to be able to survive this conflict. 
And then uh, the episode concludes with Annie discovering that Ace is ambulatory and has come for her. So I know this was a really quick um, breakdown of this episode, but I, I just... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get this episode out. Um, and there's a couple there's a couple Easter eggs, like I said. There's a, It makes me think of the China Pit when she falls through um, into the underground cavern. And then, of course, there's the Marston House. Um, so, guys, at 20 minutes, this is a lean, mean episode. Um, but I'll be back with episode my, my thoughts on episode three soon enough. Um, and in the meantime, if you have any time on your hands, a review on iTunes would really help me out. Uh, and you can always head on over to uh, Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com uh, and leave me an email. Okay, everyone. So until next time, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next week where M O O N spells Stephen Kingcast. <laughs>